This morning, uh, we're thinking about the ends of marriage. So this is, on one level, a very technical question. Uh, ends, we're thinking kind of philosophically, what is the nature of a thing? What is the end of it? Uh, if we were thinking in Greek, we'd be thinking of telos. Um, what I'm going to argue for in this class is, uh, in a sense, a traditional argument in terms of the ranking the hierarchy of those ends. Um, there has been some debates last half century about the ranking of those ends, um, less so in recent years, um, but that's kind of what we're going to talk through in this class. So, summary first of all, the ends, what are we thinking about today? Um, we're going to distinguish between the ends. We're going to note the question of a hierarchy among those ends. We're going to spend quite a bit of time considering the significance of pleasure and then more briefly note the goods of marriage. So the three ends, first the procreation and education of children. Second, the union of the couple themselves. And third, the least glamorous, but there in the tradition, a remedy for concupiscence. Lest you burn with desire to quote St. Paul. Now in thinking of hierarchy, a ranking of those ends, one of the key points I want to make is what is meant by such a hierarchy. I'm going to argue that it's not, not a hierarchy of value, yeah, so it doesn't mean that union is less important. It's a hierarchy of causation. What relates to what structurally in the essence of what marriage is about? So I'm going to argue that the final cause of what makes marriage marriage is procreation and education of children. I'm going to note also that the end of union the union is a real end yeah, so if we're saying it's number two, we want to be clear, nonetheless, it's a real end. And that it's not a mere means to the other end. Because there might be a mistaken way of saying, well, the only purpose of the union of the couple is to produce children. Now this structuring doesn't imply that, um, but it does say the level of final cause, um, the final cause, procreation and education. I'm going to quote Perry Cajal's book, which is very, very good, very clear on these things. He'll talk about the ends mutually interpenetrating. That they're just things that can't really be separated from each other. And John Paul II, who notes that the unitive meaning 
is open quotes by means of the procreative meaning that if you pull the procreative meaning out of marriage you're stripping out of marriage the thing that makes it most unitive and that holds even when a particular marriage doesn't have children. <sighs> With respect to pleasure, I'm going to note that pleasure is natural in sex and in marriage, that pleasure is in God's plan and a point I'm going to say today I will quote a number of times through this course St. Thomas says man cannot live without pleasure in fact more specifically cannot live without bodily pleasures So if we're embarrassed at the thought of pleasure within sex, pleasure within marriage, um, that's not the authentic tradition. Um, and then as I say, I'm not going to spend long on the question of goods. We might not even touch it at all. Um, but goods are realized in any activity. Does realize have a Z or an S? S is the charming. <laughs> Are you joking? I know it depends, but in this land, it's a Z. Okay, but notice I didn't say a Z. Okay, um, goods are realized in the activity of marriage. What happens during marriage, in marriage, various goods are produced. In particular, three goods, fidelity, an indissoluble bond, and fruitfulness. And those goods, goods aren't the same as ends, um, but they do describe the essence of marriage. Um, so we're not going to, well, occasionally in this course we'll make reference to Germaine Griset. You'd have heard of Griset in your moral, fundamental moral theology. Um, I'm not a disciple of his, but he argued that in marriage there is a single good that has these other things within it. Um, he didn't have ends in his structure of analysing marriage at all, because ends is a very traditionally Thomistic, Aristotelian structure that he created a whole new structure. Um, so depending who you're reading, you might read an analysis of marriage where there's a lot of talk about goods or the good and no talk about ends. Um, so that in a summary is what we're looking at today. Okay, so let's turn to the lecture notes. Um, so the ends of sex and marriage procreation, union, remedy for concupiscence. And I start by considering the question, what are we aiming for in sex? And I put three possibilities there. Pleasure, which we could call the, call the Hollywood answer. Union, the romantic answer. 
and or children, what I've said we could call the forgotten answer. Um, and in future lectures we'll consider the virtue that relates to this course, namely chastity. In fact, I think that's our next two lectures. Um, you remember the structure of virtues? Virtues are defined by their object. So in order to talk about that virtue, you need to know what is the object of this action. Um, you've got to know the end. What is the end? So we're looking at the ends of marriage before we're considering the virtue of chastity. Okay, I then have three pages on pleasure. Actually, four pages on pleasure. Pleasure and sex. Um, now, this first little section here, I'm trying to describe why is this so important. So, I say the problem of pleasure. First, pleasure can distract us from God. So, in that sense, it can be a problem. That the disorder within my concupiscence means we have a disordered degree of desire for this pleasure. St. Thomas says that the pleasures of sex are the greatest of sensible pleasures. So if you're disordered in your desires and the greatest of those desires for the greatest pleasure is sex, then the whole question of pleasure and sex at a practical level can be problem problematic. More specifically, though, for us as theologians, point two, the heresies of Puritanism and Jansenism mean that many people have a mistaken guilt when they experience pleasure. Thus, many kind of religious people either ignore God when they go into the bedroom so that they have an unintegrated spiritual life, or they feel conflicted and confused in the bedroom possibly resulting in their spouse feeling unfulfilled. You've done Jansenism in history? Yeah. And like many heresies, and Jansenism never had a formal condemnation, so it's kind of even more true that therefore it doesn't have a precise definition. Um, but Jansenism, broadly speaking, anybody? means a, okay a form of dualism between okay what heaven like earning Earn, yeah <laughs> Certainly that it's very difficult to get there, um, and that actually might be true, but um, for our context in particular, this dualism, the world is bad, the body is bad, in this context, pleasure is bad. Um, and that, what does that mean in practice? Um, it means when you are experiencing pleasure, you feel guilty about it or the only way you engage in pleasure is by not thinking about God. Um, as one of my favorite country western songs put it, puts it, I hope the good Lord isn't looking tonight. Um, that's, um, so it, in Irish culture where there's been a lot of Jansenism, uh, so that Jansenism came from France, uh, the wicked London government didn't let priests train in, in Ireland, so the Irish had to go to France to become trained to be priests. They therefore brought that heresy of Jansenism back to Ireland. And then the Irish spread across the world, uh, priests, missionaries, to pretty much everywhere. And that strain of Jansenism therefore is very widely diffused in the church. So an Irishman, when he drinks, enjoys himself, will tend to, you know, so there's a lot of alcoholism in Ireland and extreme, 
rather than moderation. You know, you find the southern Catholic countries in Europe, alcohol but in moderation. Um, the northern countries where either Jansenism or Protestant Puritanism, alcoholism is only kind of an extreme. You, you don't really have an integrated way of enjoying yourself with God, having pleasure with God. So when you're enjoying yourself, you're hoping God's not looking and you're not looking at him. Uh, and so you, the tendency there is going to be that you either are super abstemious or you go to excess. Um, in sex, that means promiscuity or super um, uh, abstinence, but, but an unlikely, you're unlikely to have a healthy sense of God is a part of this package of me enjoying myself, part of this package of me experiencing pleasure. So that's what I want to spend these two pages here trying to unpack. What actually if we are in the tradition if we are in the moment of the church's history where we are recovering St. Thomas, um, what does the tradition have to teach us on this? So the third point I say on that page, I say, nonetheless, pleasure, including sexual pleasure, is from God and part of natural functioning so that a pleasure integrated into our life with God needs to be understood and embraced accurately. So you're all with me in terms of the relevance of this pleasure question. Um, and I'm guessing depending of your own ethnic, cultural background, lineage within America, you'll have, you'll recognize more or less of that description in your own backgrounds. I think the German Catholics, I don't really think have a Jansenistic tendency don't know if I can be corrected on that, but it's more the Irish lineage. Um, and in England, a lot of our Catholicism is through the Irish, so we get that too. In England, we'd have lots of Puritanism as a residue, even while we're seeking to not be. In America too, that Puritanism is somehow in the air, even while you're being Catholic. America, the only country where the drinking age is 21 because you have a discomfort with alcohol. Um, so you can die for your country at 18, but you can't have a drink until you're 21. Anyway, back to pleasure more generally. So page two, Aristotle and pleasure. So before thinking of St. Thomas, Aristotle. I say, Aristotle treated of pleasure at length in the Nicomachean Ethics. He argued against the Stoics who disdained all pleasure. He argued that pleasures differ in species according to what they accompany. He argued that pleasures complete each activity with different pleasures for different activities. And then he also dwells at length on the fact that he says pleasure cannot be properly sought separated from the activity it completes. Uh, you've got to seek the end, the good, not the pleasure as an end in itself. Though he notes we tend to do a lot of that, but um, that's when everything starts to fall apart. So St. Thomas builds on that. So St. Thomas treats of the goodness and malice of pleasures in the summer there as I cite. He notes they're both good pleasures and evil pleasures. Good actions bring good pleasures, evil actions bring evil pleasures. And what, what is pleasure? Well pleasure accompanies a successfully completed operation and pleasure is a sign of an action being successfully completed. Go on, that the appetite that seeks goods and it rests in pleasure when it achieves them. 
then directly quoting, the divine mind, the author of nature, joins pleasures to natural operations. Okay, some examples here, what, what's being meant. Different pleasures, so intellectual pleasures. So the scholars delight in understanding a new truth. Yeah, hopefully that should be a, a common experience as you're studying that there's a, a, some things you say, ah, yes, and there's a type of delight that comes in learning a new thing. Then a different type of intellectual delight, delight in beholding a beautiful scenic view, which even in Ohio happens sometimes, yeah? <laughs> um, the student's delight in completing an assignment, yeah, there's a type of pleasure, you, you finish the paper, there's a, a type of delight that goes with that. Different from the teenager's delight in a girl agreeing to a first date. Yeah, so even without the senses being involved, there's a kind of intellectual delight there. Physical pleasures, which is what we tend to think of most when we use the word pleasure. The pleasure that accompanies a good meal. I note also the displeasure that accompanies overeating. So humans need to seek pleasure so I then quote St. Thomas as I did earlier, none can live without some sensible and bodily pleasure. The temperate man does not shun all pleasures, but only those that are immoderate. All things seek pleasure in the same way as they seek good, since pleasure is the repose of the appetite in good. Okay, so let's pause here. Um, I've said a lot of technical stuff there. How much of that is already familiar to you in your philosophy or elsewhere? So this notion, what is pleasure? That my soul is yearning for various goods, I get a good, and there's just a rest in the soul that happens, experiencing pleasure in the possession of that good. but it's the possession of that good, the achieving of that end that triggers the pleasure. If I'm trying to grasp the pleasure itself, separated from the activity, then everything kind of falls apart. You don't get the proper measure. You don't get the proper goal, object of the act. So how does the modern understanding of what is like dopamine or adrenaline or whatever fit into this? It's a good question. And I've not looked at that in great depth, but what I would have, my feeling is that that just reinforces this. I think St. Thomas would be viewing pleasure not just as physically as dopamine, because there you're only describing something chemically. Your soul is beyond that, and the soul is resting in pleasure not just the brain and dopamine. But St. Thomas also talks about how this, you don't have operations of the soul, the intellect, except through the body, so that you would expect a linkage there. Um, I suppose that's as much of an answer as I, I have. I, I've not read any good study on that. Um, I'm reading some stuff on habit formation at the moment, trying to piece together some things I don't think I've read piece together of the science of habit formation, dopamine, you know, the, the trigger routine reward cycle that can be observed at a chemical level, um, but does seem to me to accord with what Aristotle and St. Thomas were saying. And although St. Thomas might have talked about humours in the body and such, he was talking about things in the body um, corresponding to what was going on in the soul.
So where does this go wrong? So at the bottom of the page there I say, when sexual pleasure becomes problematic, because it can become problematic. So I say, like all pleasures, sexual pleasure is not an end in itself. Pleasure becomes problematic when sought as an end in itself. Quoting the Catechism, sexual pleasure is morally disordered when sought for itself, isolated from its procreative and unitive purposes. So to seek pleasure in union with the activity that goes with it, it's not a problem. Seeking the pleasure isolated from, pulling it apart from, that's when we have a problem. Okay, the next page I'm trying to unpack that thing I just said in a bit more detail. So, trying to think, what are you aiming for when you perform some activity? Two examples there, eating and sexual intercourse. So, what are we aiming for in eating? So, I want that cookie. I see that cookie. I want to eat that cookie. And I know it's going to taste nice, that it will give me pleasure, and I know what it is, that it's food, that I don't reach for the pleasure. The pleasure isn't there. The cookie is what's there. Um, I reach for the thing that gives me pleasure. Similarly, what are we aiming for in sexual intercourse? Well, I want sex. I know that it will feel good, give me pleasure, and I know what it is, the marital act. I don't reach for pleasure isolated from anything else. Rather, I want that unified thing, the good of the marriage act. But I know conversely, if I seek pleasure isolated from the act, then to quote again from the Catechism, sexual pleasure is morally disordered when sought for itself, isolated from its procreative and unitive purposes. So it becomes problematic, sought as an end in itself. Does that work as an image? That you are reaching for a thing, knowing that pleasure comes with it, wanting the pleasure that comes with it. You're not reaching for the thing and disdainfully not wanting the pleasure. I'm going to eat the cookie and just endure the pleasure that comes with it. Um, but it's the thing I'm reaching for. Um, Okay, the bottom part of the page here, I'm using a similar analogy with how pleasure can bond two people together. So sharing sexual pleasure and being bonded by sexual pleasure, and an analogy here with eating. So I say compare. Compare sharing the pleasure of a meal. Going to have a steak and a beer with a friend followed by an intense chocolate pudding. Now, two ways you can do that. You can experience the pleasure in self-orientation, physically engrossed in the pleasure and oblivious of your friend. That will not bond you to your friend. Yeah, so I went out for a steak with Father Brennan last night uh, and it was really nice. Um, it would have been and there's a way of eating it where I'm just so consumed by that that I'm barely remembering who's there across the table from me. That the pleasure, the conversation kind of stops, diminishes, because I'm, I'm focused on me now, me and my pleasure. And if I'm doing that, the meal isn't bonding us. But you can experience the pleasure of eating, of that meal, of that perfectly cooked steak, as part of something broader, with your friend, thinking of your friend, a thing you're doing together, that such an experience bonds you together. And note this isn't somehow physically inherent in the act of eating, per se, but it does give an analogy. I say further, it is, however, almost per se to the act of eating, 
if we consider that eating is a social and a socially bonding activity in every human culture. So, you know, whatever culture you look at in human history, very primitive, very advanced, um, eating is always a social thing. It's a thing that bonds people together. You make a new friend, you have a visitor, you eat together to bond you together. I'm not going to say it's something as structurally true as, as sexual intercourse, but there is something about eating that, if you engage in it properly, does bond people together. So, so a shared pleasure is somehow part of that structure of what bonds you together. Now sexual pleasure then, kind of moving the analogy to where we're actually thinking. Sexual pleasure can be selfish, using, using the other for self-pleasure with little awareness or concern for the other, or it can be mutual, engaging the other as a person, not as a means to your selfish end of pleasure. Aware of the other, concerned for the other. And so what I'm saying here is that the sexual act per se is ordered to a sharing that binds the couple together. In a more organic manner than eating, binding a couple together. So that concludes what I'm going to say about pleasure and sex. Any concluding observations at this stage? Over the page, um, page four, I'm not going to run through with you, but I do just briefly note some footnotes there. The manuals in the build-up to the Second Vatican Council um, had that disdain for pleasure, that viewing of the passions as something negative and awkward um, that isn't Thomistic, isn't Aristotelian. Um, so you will find old books that talk about pleasure and the passions in that way. Um, that the pleasures are something to be conquered rather than something to be integrated and trained and formed. Okay, to move on. Page five then. So now I'm going to talk about what I've mapped out here, ends, um, purposes, reasons. Um, now before I look at my notes here, let's just think generally what's going on here, because we'll use the word reason. The tradition also, different church documents use different terminology down the centuries. Um, Depending what question they're asking, you get a different answer in terms of the, the ranking of those ends. So, um, Harry meets Sally, and Harry says to Sally, you, I want to have babies with you. Now, she would think that's a bit freakish, yeah? That's not you'd expect Harry to say to Sally, I want you. And I want you in such a way that I want us to enter into this thing, this reality, this marriage. And marriage is ordered to children. That's the thing that makes it distinctive. But the reason that you're starting the whole thing is, is Harry wants Sally. Um, Whereas if Harry's starting that conversation saying, I want you to have my children, that's just weird. Um, so to say that procreation is the first end of marriage doesn't mean it's the first reason in the mind of a couple entering into that reality. 
Um, whereas uh, the reading you had from Patrick Riley, he was kind of arguing historically, sociologically, what makes marriage different from other realities? What does marriage serve as a function socially for society? Its primary good giving to society is children. And when a society forgets that, it's beginning its own undoing. Okay, let's look a little more technically here at what I've got on page five. Ends, goods, purposes, reasons. Um, so I note that the tradition and theology confusingly and sometimes seemingly interchangeably speak of ends or purposes or reasons or goods and speak of these things with respect to the procreation and education of children, the good of the spouse's mutual help, the marital bond, and a remedy for concupiscence. And I know traditionally these have been ranked in a hierarchy. Now in the 20th century, um, some theologians, I say, shifted focus to emphasize the value of the union of the couple rather than the procreation and education of children. 1944, the Holy See reasserted the traditional hierarchy which was being questioned by many theologians who were teaching that the primary end of marriage was the union of the couple. There I'm footnoting Ludwig Ott's kind of definitive fundamentals of Catholic dogma. Humanivite in 1968 doesn't talk about a hierarchy at all. It tries to just bypass that question and simply says that the procreative and unitive meanings are inseparable. The 1983 Code of Canon Law, while not speaking of ends either, referred to the good of the spouses and the procreation and education of offspring. Now that is sometimes quoted as if that implies that ranking of ends has been changed, but actually there's no reference to ends in the Code of Canon Law at all. Just a reference to goods. I say late 20th century, I say three factors shifted the whole conversation in terms of the ends of marriage. I say, in general, first, we've had, latter part of the 20th century, a return to orthodoxy and clear thinking. Um, I'm old enough to have witnessed a fair bit of that change. And just in different theological journals, just the parameters of various discussion changing. Um, and just the general kind of return to orthodoxy is the mainstream. Second, with that, less fear of precision. So when I was in seminary, one of the easiest ways for a professor to attack the tradition would be to attack the use of precision and definitions and precise terminology. Again, recent decades, you just see increasingly authors are comfortable with precision and you would dis critique a scholar who doesn't have precision in what he's writing. Um, but third, a big shift I think in the debate in this regard, secular same-sex marriage, as it calls itself, refocused the tension on how radically the ordering to children makes heterosexual marriage different from human unions. So the narrative about how do we explain how marriage and same-sex marriage are different? Well, children pretty rapidly becomes part of what you're talking about. Um, and so my reading of the, the shift on what articles were being published about what suddenly you found children being talked about as the purpose of marriage much more explicitly than was being done in the humani immediate humanity period where there was so much of an emphasis wanting to kind of talk about the good of the couple um, and saying, and that's not a opposed to children, 
almost as if we're kind of still a bit embarrassed to be bringing children into the conversation at all. Um, so a shift in emphasis over those decades. I would argue, what I'm arguing here, the traditional teaching on the ranking of the hierarchy of those ends has not shifted in all that time. Even though the literature has changed in terms of what the focus has been. Um, and the Code of Canon Law and the Catechism just don't touch on the question, what are the ends of marriage? They talk simply about goods that are realized in the activity of marriage. Code of Canon Law course, you will talk about the goods of marriage. Um, if you come to my um, verbal examination for your STB um, at the end of your time here and you give me a canon law answer when I ask you about the ranking of the ends of marriage, that will not do well for your grade. Yeah, so note what I'm saying here. And I'm saying that because, impossible as it is to believe, guys have done that in that very uh, verbal exam. Uh, give me a canon law answer to a theology question on this. Um. That's a good question. Shouldn't they match? Um, as I said, canon law just doesn't touch on the question of the ends. So if you, there are canon lawyers who have argued, well, there are canon lawyers who have argued that what the canon law says about goods is the ends, but I just don't think that follows. And I'm going to quote John Paul II. Um, so the Code of Canon Law came out under John Paul II. John Paul II in his own writings as Pope talks about reaffirming the traditional hierarchy of ends. So the only way that canonical claim that the church has changed its teaching and now ranks union ahead of procreation is to say that the Pope who issued that code of canon law um, contradicted it in his own teachings later, um, which I don't think is a coherent position. Let me unpack what I'm, what I'm saying is the relationship between these different realities here of ends. So say, concerning the two ends of the procreation and education of offspring and the good of the spouse's mutual help, the marital bond. So those two ends, how do they relate to each other? First, I say in bold, these two ends, quoting Perry Cajal, mutually interpenetrate each other. How do they mutually interpenetrate? So here in those footnotes, I'm referring to sometimes Perry Cajal, sometimes Janet Smith. Um, the bond of the couple serves the good of the offspring or potential offspring. The offspring need the security of a stable home. Offspring need the example of parents who love each other. Yeah, so in one direction, union serves the offspring end. But if you flip that around, the end of offspring also serves the end of union. Next point. Having a child together bonds a couple. So Janet Smith argues that seeking to have a child together bonds the couple, but they're yearning for a common goal. Gaudium et Spes says, Children contribute to the well-being of the parents themselves. How does that happen? Children increase selfless love and thus purify love. The baby screaming at you during the night purifies that love um, because the needs of the child are put before their individual needs. Further, the husband and wife come to know each other through their child. The husband and wife reveal themselves to each other in new ways as a result of having a child. And further, the husband and the wife tend for each other in new ways 
as they tend for the needs of the offspring. So I've tried to articulate in that section this mutually interpenetrating, these two ends. It's not just two unrelated things that they are ordered to each other, they're serving each other. At the risk of stating the obvious, that's very different from how your secular friends will tend to think of this. Having a child is a distraction from your union together as a couple. Having a child is a thing you put off because you want to have quality time together. Um, the thought that having a child can in itself be a thing that bonds you together and that in marriage you have entered into something that is ordered to that as which bonds you together in a very unique way. What makes marriage marriage, this ordering to a child? What makes marriage different from just a great committed friendship? This ordering to a child, this looking beyond. talked yesterday in uh, Theology of the Body about the cycle of knowledge and generation. So there's this, in the knowing of, of the spouse and the generation of child, there's a further knowing of who you are as you become more uh, giving of yourself to a third, which is in the image of the two of you. So you get to know each other even more, and that, and that continues as you get to know your spouse more, etc. And how many of you are doing that course? Two of you. And some of you have already done it? Two of you. Okay, so what I'm trying to articulate and summarize here, you should be recognizing as, at least in part, a summary of JP2's thought. Um, With Dr. Carl. Okay. Okay. Ah, uh, okay. Just the two of you. Okay. So you've been going through ends and goods. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, then you're going to do it in my class as well. So. You know, I hope you guys do appreciate how fortunate you are to be in an institution that has two scholars who are world-class in this regard. Perry Cajal's book, The Mystery of Marriage, uh, is a really good book uh, and says some things I think are just on one level summarizing the tradition, but does it with great clarity in terms of these different realities, goods, hierarchies, ends. Um, and obviously to have Dr. Ignosik with his knowledge of the theology of the body being one of the original retranslators of those works, um, we're very fortunate to have them here. Okay, bottom bit of this, page five there, John Paul II. So what does he say with all this then? He says, the unitive meaning is, in a certain sense, by means of the procreative meaning i.e. the procreative meaning bonds the couple together, i.e. without the procreative meaning the couple are not truly bound to each other by the marriage act. So if a couple come to you seeking marriage and saying, oh but we don't want children, then the thing that truly unites them they're not wanting to have. And obviously, unitive meaning is not the same thing as saying, um, or rather procreative meaning is not the same thing as saying procreation. So if the couple never achieve an actual child, which 
often happens that whatever's you know fertility is a complicated thing but their union is still ordered towards that um, and that ordering still is what makes marriage marriage um, and so we have pastorally that difficult dynamic of needing in a sense on one hand to be so gung-ho in talking about the good of children the good of fruitfulness but also for those that will end up sterile to s articulate that in a way that doesn't make somebody utterly heartbroken when they can't achieve it for themselves um, and you know various writings there's a fruitfulness in a marriage that isn't only having a child a fruitfulness in their love that serves those they're interacting with whether it's in the parish or broader society okay page six so the previous page i was talking about how these two ends relate to each other interpenetrate ranking them now the question of a hierarchy of ends i say pope john paul ii in light of the preceding page says um and this was in a general audience that came out in 1984 i don't put that i didn't put that date in the notes so that is the year after the code of canon law so if someone's claiming the code of canon law has changed that teaching he is saying the year after the Code of Canon Law comes out, he, the Supreme Pontiff at the time, is saying the traditional teaching on the ends of marriage and their hierarchy is confirmed and at the same time deepened from the point of view of the interior life of the spouses of conjugal and familial spirituality. Dr. Cahal comments, to designate a hierarchy of ends of marriage is not to establish a hierarchy of value pertaining to those ends. It's not to say that the good of spouses is somehow of less value than the procreation and education of children. It's also not saying that the good of the spouses as a secondary end only has value as a means to attain the primary end of procreation. So he makes a distinction. He says the unitive meaning of marriage is subordinate to the procreative, quoting John Paul II, but the unitive is not a mere means to the procreative end, but is rather an end in itself. And thus an infertile couple can truly be married. So what does the hierarchy indicate? Why is it significant that in the tradition there is this talk of a hierarchy? What does it indicate? Is it, I say, it indicates what makes marriage different from other relationships. Quoting Cahal again, um, to say that the procreation and education of children is the primary end of marriage is to point out what is most distinctive about this type of relationship and what makes it unique among all types of human relationships. Further, it identifies philosophically, and here I'm quoting someone else, the final cause of marriage. That is the cause or purpose that specifies marriage as a distinct reality. The fidelity of the spouses serves the raising of offspring I say, but we can't really say that the raising of offspring serves the fidelity of the spouses in the same directness. It does serve it, but... Um, so there's a, a hierarchy of relationship, a hierarchy of causation, but not a hierarchy of value. So note, I say, marriage is ordered to both ends neither end can be accurately seen in competition with each other neither end can be chosen in opposition to the other cf in the humanities talk of them being inseparable and we'll come back to that when we consider the question of contraception comments so far
I'm kind of saying the same thing again and again and again <laughs> um, because I wanted to make sure it's clear. Um, okay, how, sorry, go on. Um, it's probably slightly different, but how, how does adoption fit in to all of this? Because like, it's still part of the educate, you still educate the child, so there right. is some of that. And it's that tending for the child that draws the couple, but obviously it's kind of different. It, yeah, because adoption isn't organic to that couple. It hasn't come from their bodies. Their bodies haven't been united by that act. Um, the desire to have a child that is presumably manifested in their desire to adopt a child is manifested in that. But it's not the same. Otherwise, a same-sex couple seeking to adopt would be the same, which is their claim that, well, we, we want a child, we've adopted a child. Um, did you have something else you were thinking? No. Because it seemed like it kind of fits the and I think that's, yeah, exactly right. Because in a way, it seems like you're, you know, in some way by God's providence, you're not able to have a child. You're still seeking union with your partner, with your spouse. Well, then it seems like adoption is this uh, mechanical way of making that happen to fulfill that end that's not being given to you. It would seem. I'm not saying that it is. Yeah. But Just wondering why you're using the word mechanical. Because I, I, I couldn't okay. think of the right okay. word. Okay. Whereas, if we're talking about a same-sex couple, I guess, I think then mechanical becomes useful in that it implies there's something artificial isn't flowing out of the relationship. The same-sex union is simply not capable of producing a child. It can only seek a child by some non-natural means of bringing a child in, which is different from a heterosexual couple whose the nature of that union of its nature is capable of producing a child, even if for that individual couple, somehow it's not working. Whereas a man and a man together, it's simply not ever possible for a child to be produced. A woman and a woman together, it's simply not ever possible for a child to be produced. Pretty sure a fairy just died somewhere. Sorry? Pretty sure a fairy just died somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and a unicorn, yeah. So I am arguing a particular line here. Um, I haven't had you read articles arguing a contrary line, in part because I've not come across one for a long time. So it kind of was a thing being said that the traditional ordering of, of the ends of marriage had been kind of dismissed. Um, I've not read an article it, that, that seems a very old opinion. Um, so obviously you do still have people running around saying, oh, the church should jettison everything and whatever, but not with any of the attempted theological cleverness of shifting the ends of marriage. They're just trying to sweep away any of those questions altogether. Let's move on to page seven of my notes here. So here I'm noting, I've titled this page, how the tradition ranks the ends of marriage. And here I am wanting to acknowledge that different church documents down the centuries do say slightly different things. And in part it depends what word they're using, 
Um, and to repeat from a point I made earlier, if you're asking a different question, you do get a different answer. And so depending what question you're asking, how these things relate to each other is going to vary. So St. Thomas, the primary end of marriage is the good of the offspring. Uh, the secondary end of marriage is mutual assistance. Code of Canon Law of 1917 specifies two ends of marriage, so it doesn't just talk about goods, it talks about ends. It says the primary end of marriage is the procreation and raising of children, with the secondary end being mutual help and the remedy for concupiscence. Catechism of the Council of Trent speaks of three reasons or ends people should have in view to marry. The companionship of the two spouses, the desire for procreation to raise Christians, and as a remedy for concupiscence, to not burn with passion, quoting St. Paul. And it notes that other reasons, such as Jacob choosing Rachel for her beauty, are not condemned by scripture. That's an interesting point, because, you know, if the, all of these things, are, beauty doesn't appear here. Um, but Trent does make that point that actually that's, it, it may not be listed as kind of as important about what marriage is in itself, but as a reason of what's being sought by an individual, well, obviously beauty is part of, you want a particular woman because you look at her and you see her beauty. Okay, the Catechism of the Council of Trent uh, also gives three blessings of marriage, uh, offspring, fidelity, and the sacrament, the indissoluble bond. Um, and just in terms of authority of documents, the Catechism of the Council of Trent is not the same thing as the Council of Trent. Yeah, it's, it's canonical decrees, anathemas, canons, and such. So... Um, Okay, Vatican II, what did the council say? Um, Christopher, can you read that block quote for us? By the very nature, the instruction of matrimony itself and conjugal law are ordained for the procreation and education of children and find in them their ultimate ground. Marriage and conjugal love are, by their nature, ordained for the beginning and educating of children. Children are really the supreme gift of marriage and contribute very substantially to the welfare of the parents. While not linking the other purposes of matrimony of less account, the true practice of conjugal love and the whole meaning of the family life which results from it have the same, that the couple be ready with stout heart to cooperate with the love of the Creator and Savior, who through them will enlarge and enrich his own family day by day. Marriage, to be sure, is not instituted solely for procreation, Rather, its very nature as an unbreakable compact between persons and the welfare of the children both demand that the mutual love of the spouses be embodied in a rightly ordered manner that it grows and brightens. Um, the terminology of Humana Vitae says the procreative and unitive meanings are inseparable. That's the key thing that document argues, but it doesn't list any ranking of those two. Catechism of the Council of Trent say, uh, quote, marriage is by its nature ordered to the good of the spouses and the procreation and education of offspring. It says the spouses union achieves the twofold end of marriage, the good of the spouses themselves and the transmission of life. These two meanings or values of marriage cannot be separated without altering the couple's spiritual life and compromising the goods of marriage and the future of the family. Then over the page, kind of summarizing the lecture before the bell. Um, so I'm gonna pull that together and summarize as I say here. Primary end of marriage, the procreation and education of offspring. Secondary end of marriage, mutual support of the spouses, which is a true end of marriage, not just a means to the procreative end but an end subordinate to the primary end of procreation. Subordinate in terms of defining the distinctiveness of marriage, 
not subordinate in terms of value. A further end of marriage is a remedy for concupiscence, and I note that was not in the original purpose of sex and marriage before the fall. I, additionally, I paraphrase one of my old professors, Father Basil Cole, a uh, Dominican at Washington, in Washington, D.C., at the faculty there. He summarized the debate in this way. That the framing of the question changes the nature of the hierarchy. In terms of what serves the common good, the raising of offspring is the primary end. But in terms of what a young man and young woman are seeking themselves, they're seeking each other. But in a type of union that's is in itself ordered to something beyond them. Comments? Because you're right, it's not, as you're, we're reading this, it's not just procreation as the end, procreation and education or procreation and raising of offspring. Um, I'm not sure. And historically, I, I just don't know the answer to that. Um. Okay, the last point I list on that page, just contraception. So just looking ahead to later in the course, this teaching on the multiple ends of marriage has a significant consequence. It can be morally permissible to seek one end while not actualizing the other end i.e. to seek the unitive in the absence of the procreative. But it's not morally permissible to directly thwart one end, i.e. to directly thwart the procreative meaning inherent in the marital act. Okay, the last two pages there, um, actually I wrote, but I don't think add anything to what's um, I've said already. Um, page nine, I'm just articulating the sexual act is per se ordered to the same thing that marriage is, namely physically its structure is, is ordered to a child being produced, but physically ordered it also has this dimension that somehow does express the love of the, the couple for each other, but also foster the love of the couple for each other in that shared um, experience. Okay, let's close there. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father,